pray with me. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, the first time that I ever tried my hand at I was pretty convinced that I did not have a knack for it. It was during graduate school. Uh, The school had just built a community garden that people could come and help build the plots for and then participate in for the season. And so the garden and I, we got off to a pretty good start. When Ren and I built the raised beds, I felt pretty good about it. When I went to Home Depot and I found gloves that matched my hat, I felt super excited about that. Of course, why not? And then when we planted the seeds and the first green buds sprouted up out of the ground, I was practically over the moon. But shortly after that is when things started to roll downhill pretty fast. After just a few weeks, the bugs were eating my broccoli, the sun had scorched half the green beans, and the neighborhood raccoon, who by this point had become my mortal enemy, had gotten into my cucumber patch. Worst of all, my tomato plants were just not producing anything. I tried everything I was taught to do. Weed, water, wait. Weed, water, wait over and over and over again, and those stubborn tomatoes just would not produce. And so after about two months of this, of trekking watering cans and garden tools all the way out to the community plot, only to find another unwanted surprise, after spending hours online trying to figure out where I might be going wrong, I was nearing my wit's end. And as I sat out by the plots one day, I remember feeling this wave of defeat just wash over me. I seriously contemplated tearing it all out and starting over again or not, because I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what these plants needed in order to survive. I had no idea. I was spending all this time pouring my blood, sweat, and tears into this garden, hoping that we would get veggies out of it. And that didn't seem to be happening. So why in the world was I wasting my time? So I got up from sitting near my plots. I dusted off the dirt on my pant legs and I picked up my garden shovel. And sighing heavily, I was just about all the work that I had done when I heard this voice from across the garden go, everything okay over there? It was my seminary friend, Nate, a farmer in another life who had apparently been watching me sulk in the heat of the afternoon sun. He had plots a few rows down from mine, and of course his were mass-producing enough vegetables to feed six families of 12. And I called back, Nate, it's not working. No matter what I do, it's not happening. I've waited, I've watered, I've weeded, there's nothing. What do I do? And Nate responded casually, hmm, I don't know, actually, as if he didn't know. He always seemed so zen-like in the garden, which really irritated me on that particular day. And he said to me, have you tried not watering them for a while? No, 
I replied. Isn't that a bit counterintuitive? But Nate just sort of smiled coyly and a little too cryptically for my state of mind said, you know, Kate, sometimes the plants just need to be a little stressed in order for the roots to really grow. And despite my irritation, I listened to him. And do you know what happened? This. Isn't that amazing? It struck me as I was harvesting these how aware Nate seemed to be of the land, its tender balance of delicate needs and its dependence on other things, how when you tweak just one thing, it can and often does set off a chain reactions for all the other things. I marveled as I plucked these cherry tomatoes off the vine and how my garden flourished really all thanks to Nate. His connection, his ability to understand and respond to the needs of so many creaturely things that were living in that particular place. And it also dawned that if left to my own devices, the only thing that my disconnection and my unawareness would have led to was destruction. Last week, we began a worship series called Taste and See. We've been talking about how food and eating were actually two primary ways that God showed up in the Bible, came to people and taught them something about themselves, and each other, and their relationships that they existed in. Last week, we used bread to talk about how all of life is God's community, and all of life is connected. We are dependent on one another. But I am convinced that it is actually our disconnection from place and people and the relationships we literally exist in all the time. It is this disconnection that is the primary way we've begun to habit the world we live in today, despite every new piece of technology that claims it's being designed or connected to each other. And I think that disconnection might actually be destroying us. This is certainly true with food. We see it with the move away from agricultural, traditional agricultural communities where food was harvested and grown by hand, where it was bought and sold locally. We now live in a global food system that's introduced things like vast trade routes and new food preservation techniques, massive amounts of fertilizer and pesticides, machine inventions, and free trade, which on one hand has given the world more access to food than people historically have ever seen, and on the other hand contributes to obscene amounts of waste and causes us to have no idea where exactly our food comes from or what practices we support with our money. Whether the food we buy is actually accessible to everyone, we don't know what life is sacrificed for our food or how their absence on the planet affect the rest of life. We don't know what's in the food we consume or what it does to our bodies. We also see this disconnection environmentally. While most of us have just about everything we need to live comfortably, we don't really know how our actions, past and present, individual and collective, actually affect the rest of life around us. For instance, do you know where your garbage and recycling actually goes? Or who it may negatively impact? 
When we run water from our tap, do we assume it's endless supply and it's safety? Will other people around the world, even in our state, know that's not true? Our garden, this garden experience that I had, it should cause us to consider the other places that disconnection crop up in our lives too. Keenly aware that it's Mental Health Awareness Month, do we ever stop to think about the effect that a careless or unkind word or neighborly gossip can have on real people? Perhaps if we did, we need so many school forums on school bullying or see so many hate-filled comments all over social media. Ages. Do we ever think about the fact that because we primarily live in communities that look and think and act like we do, that abide by the same set of unspoken social rules, that when we are encountered with the incredible diversity of the world around us, more often than not, our gut reaction is not to open ourselves up to it, but to close ourselves off, to become territorial and defensive, to arrogantly our own beliefs or sense of identity and to devalue others, to, to have harmful assumptions about them and what their intentions might be. My experience in the garden has helped me see that there are many ways in which we are increasingly unable to see our dependence and responsibility to each other, and it leads to a lack of flourishing. Most of the time, we don't even realize it. In fact, most of us in the West have learned not to depend on or prioritize others. In fact, we are trained to think that we don't need to. It is our independence, our self-sufficiency from place and people that we've emphasized. And so our disconnection is seen as a desirable, even a necessary part of life. And despite all the evidence, we often use our disconnection as an excuse to avoid taking responsibility for the destruction we see or the suffering that others might experience. We say things like, how could my choice to do this or that really be connected to the suffering of the person 20 minutes away or on the opposite side of the country or halfway around the world? I'm sure someone is more responsible than I am, so I don't know why I need to change anything at all. I think this way of thinking may actually be what inspired Jesus to tell the parable about the barren fig tree to the crowds that were speaking with him. Now we're going to get a little Bible heavy this morning, and uh, we need to because this is a severely misinterpreted text, and so I want to make sure that we understand what's happening, but it's actually pretty interesting if you can stay with me. I'll try to make it interesting. So at the beginning of this chapter— The crowds are reflecting with Jesus on the difficult state of their world, and they bring up two specific events wherein people have died. Now, the crowds assume that the people in the events were bad, the worst in fact, and so as a consequence, God is punishing them by killing them off. They're better off, the earth, the world is better off without them. This is what they believed God did back then. And in a sense, What is happening is the crowds are trying to all make sense of what's happening around them, and they start finger-pointing. They're trying to determine who's most responsible for all the chaos. And since they're the ones standing there talking with Jesus and alive, that's basically all the evidence they need that God wasn't most upset with them, that they weren't most responsible. But Jesus turns to them, and he replies, 
Do you think that those sinners were worse than all the others living in Jerusalem? No. Unless you all repent, you will all perish. Now, before we go any further, there's two things that I need to explain to you about Jesus' words. The first is that we all know Jesus most often hung out with crowds of poor and marginalized people, right? And so it might be tempting to hear Jesus in this passage as though he's standing in front of a bunch of poor people and saying, look, y'all, you're as much to blame for your situation as anyone else, so you can stop blaming everyone else for your problems. But we know the Bible, in the Bible, the God of Israel and Jesus, they advocated more than anyone else for the poor and the marginalized, and so we need to look at this more closely. Because when we interpret the Bible, we cannot just think about what the story is saying. We also have to consider which books we find the stories in, and who wrote them, and which communities they were actually written for. So the book of Luke was written about 30 or more years after Jesus had died. And it was written by a relatively wealthy Jesus convert, somebody who started following Jesus. And it was written to a relatively wealthy community. And this writer is trying to communicate the power of Jesus' message to them. Presumably, the people that are reading the story in Luke, they're not the wealthiest. They're not the most powerful, but they do live comfortably. They have just about everything they need. And they are well acquainted with the blame game. It was tempting for them to relinquish any responsibility for the suffering they saw in the world all around them because there were always people who were more powerful, more wealthy, more influential than they were who seemed to be wreaking the greatest havoc. These people the ones who were well-versed in pivoting the blame and responsibility onto others, those were the ones who would have been reading Jesus' challenging words, unless you all repent, you will all perish. Now, the second interesting thing about what Jesus is saying in this passage has to do with the word repentance. Mostly when we hear Jesus' words in this passage, we think that he is uh, threatening judgment. We hear him as saying that if you don't repent, if people don't confess of their sins and change their ways, God will rain down judgment and punishment. But I'm not exactly sure that's what Jesus is saying here. He may be giving them a little more of a warning. Because in these verses, repentance actually means something along the lines of learning a new way of seeing or being given a new view. And so basically what's happening is that while all of the crowds are arguing over who is the most responsible for all the bad stuff, Jesus says this, unless you all learn a new way of seeing, things are not going to get better. You thrive together or you die together. And then he tells them a story about a garden in an effort to help them see it. In this story, there's a rich landowner who owns a vineyard with fig trees on it, and he is ticked. He's ticked in the way I was ticked in the garden, because for three years, he's been walking out to the trees, and they haven't produced a single thing. And so after three years, he finally goes to his gardener, and he says, I'm done with this. I've been waiting, and I've been waiting, and there's no fruit. This is a waste. I'm not making any money. Time and resources are being wasted. I'm not reaping the benefits. I could be planting other things. Cut them down. But the gardener tells him to wait. Not forever. Just for one more year. So why? 
Well, to know the answer to this question, you have to know a thing or two about figs. And because most of us don't, we totally get this passage wrong. The first thing we need to know is that fig trees were often symbolic of restoration, vitality, the flourishing of life that God created things to exist in. A fig tree is mentioned in the Micah passage we read for this morning. It's talking about how when the nation of Israel is restored to its covenantal life with God and each other, that they will all sit under their own fig trees. Every time a fig tree is mentioned in the Bible, it's usually some kind of reminder that God's ultimate intention is for the flourishing of all life. And the second thing we need to know about fig trees is what every good gardener knew back then. Most fig trees actually didn't produce fruit in the first, second, or third year. It was the fourth year that fruit was produced. But the landowner didn't know this. He didn't know this because he lived clueless and disconnected. Similar to the way I wanted to tear out my whole garden because it wasn't giving me the vegetables I needed, the landowner was so focused on himself and his bottom line that he was ready to slice off life right at the roots with little understanding or regard for how that decision would impact him or anyone else. His basic metric for whether a certain life was worth investing in had to do with the convenience and the advantage that it offered him. And if it didn't offer anything, he was trained to not make room for it. His disconnection from the relationships around him almost caused life to not flourish. But the gardener, on the other hand, The gardener gave life its chance because he embraced that connection and responsibility for the life around him. He knew that the flourishing of this tree was only going to happen when you seek to understand life, when you nurture it, when you respect it, and when you make room for it to grow. And so he did and hoped for the best. So what's happening in this story, as best I can tell, is that in the midst of a crowd doing all their name-calling and blame-gaming, Jesus holds up the gardener and says that unless they learn to see life this way, to accept the responsibility they all share, life would never become what they want it to be. And I think this is true whether we are talking about caring for the air that we breathe or the plants that we exist with or the people that we work with or the lives halfway around this planet on the other side of the world. Part of the Christian life is learning to see our connections to one another, to accept responsibility for one another and their well-being, not just our own. Jesus said that he came to give life and to give it abundantly, which means that for as long as the church has been interpreting so many of Jesus' words as though he's talking about something otherworldly or some afterlife or some condemnation, Jesus is primarily caring about how we live right now. The gospel message has something to say to us about how we live right now. He told them to treat each other well and fairly and equitably, to take care of each other, to take care of the people who are hurting, and to do our best to alleviate suffering, whether we think we're primarily to blame or not. And in this passage, he tells them that none of them are off the hook, 
Their decisions, the everyday ones, the political ones, the family ones, the work ones, they all impact life in big and small ways that we can't barely begin to see. And so realistically speaking, life only flourishes when we commit to take care of each other and when we fend for more than just ourselves. This morning, as we close in prayer and as the music begins to play, you are going to be given a dried fig. I would invite you to take one. You can hold it. You can observe it. You can smell it. You can even taste it if you want. They're delicious. I had one this week. I couldn't believe it. And as you do, I want you to think about which relationships in your life need your investment. Which relationships that you are connected to in our world need your investment? Where do you see life that could be flourishing but isn't? And how might it need your tender care this morning? Once everyone has received a fig, you are invited to sit with it for a moment and think about that, and then we will read our prayer of commitment together. At this time, would those who are helping me pass these out come forward? Let us pray together. God of all that is, more than anything, you created life so that it might flourish. You give us life so that we might flourish. But God, we confess that it is hard to make room. In our busy lives, in our crowded minds, in the midst of competing needs and demands, it is hard to make room and take responsibility for life that you have given to us. Remind us that you need us, that we need each other, and that your spirit draws closest to us. It changes us. It heals us and gives us what we need the most when we care for each other. And all God's people said together, Amen.